Okay, our humor for the week. A wino boarded a bus and sat next to a nun. His hair was mussed up, his clothes were wrinkled, and his breath reeked of alcohol. He opened the newspaper and proceeded to read. Presently, he turned to the nun and asked, Sister, what causes arthritis? The sister thought this was a good opportunity to witness, so she replied, Sin, pure and simple sin, drinking whiskey, smoking big, long black cigars and carousing. What do you ask? The man replied, I just read here in the paper that the Pope has arthritis. (laughs) Doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. The sins of a culture always inexorably become the sins of the church. The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. The church is not a monastery. The church is comprised of people who live in the world. And the world infects those Christians, and of course it brings those sins into the church. Classic illustration is 1 Corinthians. When you read 1 Corinthians, you see sin after sin after sin that was characteristic of the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth infected the culture of that city and, of course, also brought it into the church. You can see it in Colossians. The passage that we looked at last Sunday said put off certain sins and they were sexual sins. You can read immediately that uh, city was immersed in immorality. You find it in our own culture. The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had a delightful time uh, talking to a missionary who had been a missionary in Nigeria for years. Very precarious situation. Well, they had a daughter that we was growing up, and, and we, found, we realized she was a marriageable age, and I said, uh, has she anybody uh, in the offing to marry? And he said, we've been a bit disappointed. We sent our daughter to an evangelical, thoroughly Christian college. And this is not true of all the Christian fellows, of course, but when they, when they would go out, the Christian fellow would say, um, I'd like to have a benefit from this date. And she knew immediately what they meant. They used the word benefit. Because our whole culture is drowning in the sewage of sexual immorality. And so it was in that Christian college. The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. That's why Paul says, put those things off. Or as we saw last Sunday, kill them. Put them to death. They should not be part of your life. Now, if you will, take a look at your outline. We have Roman numeral three, duty, the practice of the life of Christ. In the personal life, negative precepts. That's what we saw last Sunday. Now we come to the positive precepts, verses 12 to 17, and that's what we want to discuss today. So if you will, turn to chapter three of Colossians, Verse 12, we'll look at the first part. And so, we'll stop right there. 
that, those two words, and so, translate one word, which actually in Greek is therefore. Verse 12 clearly is looking to the previous paragraph, therefore. In fact, if you will, drop back to chapter 3 and look at verse 10. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You have put off the old man, it's really the old man, and you put on the new man. And so, therefore, live like that. Now, that's very interesting. He's going to say, therefore, put on. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. It says you have put on. Now put on. What do you mean? It says in chapter 3, in verse 9, you have put off the old man and you've put on the new man. Remember the diagram we had mentally? There's a crosses right in the middle here. On this side is all that you were as a lost person. That came to an end at the cross. And on this side, you became a new person. That's what you are positionally. Now, what you are positionally is to be lived out in your practice. So you put on in practice. Now, you're going to have to use your imagination for this illustration. Let's suppose that all of us are living in England. and We're English people. The king and queen are childless. And lo and behold, they adopt you. And you are now the crown prince or the crown princess of England. One of the first things they'll teach you is that's what you are. You are the crown prince and the crown princess or the crown princess of England. Now live like that. That's exactly what you have here. Positionally, you put off the old person. Positionally, you put on the new person. Now live like that. Live out what you are. One time I saw a book written for Christians entitled, Christians, do you know who you are? When you recognize who you are, it's going to infect, affect the way you live. So he says, therefore, put on. Now let's move more on here. There's, there's more. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, not only do you have a new position, you are especially blessed by God. You are chosen, you are holy, you're beloved. Now, interestingly, those same three words are used of Israel. They were chosen, they were holy, they were beloved. And so consequently, people come along and say, see, we are the new Israel. Now, that's a non sequitur. That logic doesn't work. Just because Israel was chosen and holy and beloved does not mean we're Israel. It just means that we, as another people, are chosen, holy, and beloved. In fact, folks, these same three words are used of the Lord Jesus. He was chosen, he was holy, and beloved. And that's true of us. Now let's look at these very quickly. You are chosen. The Greek word has electos. You are electoi. You are chosen ones. It seems that 
in every question and discussion time that comes up, I get one or two questions, which I received this last time and didn't get to it, and they'll be on top of the pile for the next discussion time. What about predestination? They don't use the word elect or election. They say predestination, a word, by the way, that's filled with emotions. I stay away from it. I use foreordination. It means the same thing, but it's not so freighted with feeling. Uh, what about predestination and free will? Well, it's interesting. Every once in a while, I come across a person who says, I don't believe election is in the Bible. And when I see that, I know immediately they don't know a thing about the Bible. Methodists believe in election. They do. You can't get away from it. It's all over the Bible. If a person says, I believe in election, but the question is, on what basis did he choose us? Now, that's the issue. On what basis did he choose us? The question of election is not a question. That, that, that's no question at all. It's there. You can't miss it. But on what basis did he choose you? On what basis did he choose Israel? On what basis was Christ the chosen one? So the question is, is there election? Yes. And we are elect. We are chosen. Now get a piece of that in your mind. If we're chosen, good night, great honk, stone the crows and starve the lizards, live like it. That's what he's saying. You are not only a new person, in Christ, but you're chosen, and you're holy. Now, that word holy really is a word that means set apart. We often translate it as sanctified. You are, you are sanctified. Sanctification means to set apart. And there are various kinds of sanctification, which we cannot go into right now, but there are various kinds of sanctification. This is obviously positionally sanctified. When you came from this side of the cross, to this side of the cross, you were set apart as God's chosen people. You are a special people. You're sanctified. And then the last one is beloved. I love that. It's perfect tense. The others are adjectives. This is a participle. You have been loved. And you still are. Perfect tense means completed action with continuing results. God loves you, and he, he loved you, and he loves you. You are beloved by God. If you recognize that you're loved by God, you want to live like that. I'll never forget Haddon Robinson telling a story one time that when he was a teenager, his father had set a, a time for him to come in, a curfew. And he went way past that curfew. When he came home, um, when he came home, the father said one thing to him. He said, son, tonight you hurt me. And Haddon went to his bedroom and wept because he knew his dad loved him. And it changed his behavior. It had an impact on him. If you're loved, you're going to respond to that love. We love him because he first loved us. So you are new people in Christ. You are chosen. You are set apart. And you are beloved by God. Since that is true, put on. So the first thing we have is the imperative. 
That's all we've been talking about. Now we come to the responsibilities. And this is very interesting. Various sections here. The first is regarding the treatment of others. Chapter 3, verse 12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. You know what that word heart is in the Greek? Bowels. Bowels. Gut. Belly. Now, that would be strange to say, um, put on a belly of compassion. Put on bowels of compassion. Why does it use the word bowels? Because that's where you feel your deepest emotions. You received a letter from the IRS. You are about to be audited. Right here in the gut. You have just won the clearinghouse, publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. (laughs) That's where you feel it, right down here. Well, you can't translate it as gut or bowels. So the translators put heart. Because in our culture, that is your innermost being. That's a correct translation. Put in a heart of compassion. The word compassion has the word idea of pity. Have you ever noticed how often the Lord is moved with compassion? Beautifully illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man beaten, robbed, left half dead in the roadway. A priest comes by, sees him, and passes by. A Levite sees him, passes by. A despised Samaritan sees him, he's moved with compassion. Because that's what prompts you to action. You're moved with pity. Sometimes we're moved with pity when we can do nothing. I'll never forget a picture I saw of a starving African boy, maybe two years old, sitting on the ground just ready to die from starvation. And right behind him is a huge vulture, ready to pounce on that dead body. Can you imagine the photographer who took that picture walking away from that? He walked away, did nothing. You're moved with the compassion. One that all of us have seen in the recent weeks is of this little boy in Aleppo, in, a, in an ambulance, dirty, covered with blood. In fact, he wipes his face and he looks at his hands and sees blood. And everyone who sees that is moved with compassion. But towards one another, when we see a need, be moved with compassion. Secondly, he says not only be moved with compassion, be impressed with kindness. The word kindness has about it the idea of being useful. Be useful. Probably we would say today, be nice. Be useful. Be nice towards one another. Then he talks about our view of self. He says, not only that, humility. Put on as a garment humility. Now in ancient Greek, this word in the Greek language looked at somebody that was groveling, some, uh, somebody that just had a terrible view of himself, dirt under your feet. But Christianity took this attribute and made it a virtue. It doesn't mean to grovel. It doesn't mean you're dirt under the feet. It means you have a correct view of yourself in the ministry of Christ. Did you hear what I said? A correct view of yourself in the ministry of Christ. 
I can't think of a better illustration. Well, let's take a look at it. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Turn back to Romans 12, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, very quickly. Romans chapter 12. And Paul writes this. Romans chapter 12. He says in verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Did you get that? Don't think above what you ought to be. Don't think below what you are, but think with sound judgment. Well, what does that sound judgment involve? Look what he says. He says in verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then he talks about spiritual gifts. In other words, you see what your spiritual gift is. You don't put yourself above it. You don't put yourself below it. You see what that gift is. And then you minister to the church, to the body of Christ, with that gift. Recognize what your gift is. Classic, classic point of genuine humility. Now, I've had people say, well, I don't know what my gift is. We have a gentleman in our class, Jim Shearling, who is a retired pastor who has a test of evaluating what your spiritual gift is. Jim Shearling is right up here. If you'd be interested in getting that test, I know he'll be glad to email it to you, and you can evaluate what it is. I have found another test that's not on Jim's test. It was discovered by, actually by accident. We were at an elders meeting, and somehow the question came up, uh, what would you do to bring about unity in a church? And they started to go around the board of elders saying what they would do. And after about four of the elders spoke up, I started to laugh. And they said, Pastor, why are you laughing? I said, do you realize that every one of you is showing what your spiritual gift is? The person that had the gift of administration, what you need to do is set goals, know where you're going. Next one, evangelism. Well, you could unite our church by setting those people on heart, their hearts on fire for the gospel. Get people on fire, you're going to have unity. The next one would be spirit of compassion to love the people, the gift of mercies. And they were just going through this, and I couldn't help but notice that. So if you wonder what your spiritual gift is, just ask yourself, what would I do to bring about unity in a church? And that will give you some insight into what your gift is. Of course, I would say teach. Make sure you have the right doctrine. Make sure that people believe the right things and so on. Whatever your gift is is going to show in how you would heal that problem. But the classic illustration to me is, 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 is John the Baptist. Listen to what John said. I'm not worthy to untie the shoelaces, the laces of his sandals. Talking about the Messiah. Then when a group of religious authorities sent a delegation out to John the Baptist to ask him who he was, they asked, are you the Messiah? No, 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 no. Are you the prophet? Are you, are, are you Elijah? No, no, no. Are you the prophet who's to come, the one that's predicted in Deuteronomy 18:15? No. Who are you? Oh, I'm nothing. He didn't say that. You know what he said? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He didn't put himself above. 
He didn't put himself below. He evaluated exactly where he was in the ministry for Christ. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think clearly as you ought to think. Though interestingly, even within these spiritual gifts that are listed, and by the way, if you want to look at the spiritual gifts as they're given in the New Testament, just think of 12, 12, 5, 5. You got it, 12, 12, 5, 5. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, actually 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 5. If you just remember 12, 12, 5, 5, you got it. All the spiritual gifts that are listed are there. But that's not all the gifts there are. It's very interesting. I won't take time to do it because time is going too fast. But it's interesting. People say, what about the gift of music? You can't find that in any list. In fact, when you look at the gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 5, none of those are complete. These are samples. And so when I come to 1 Corinthians 14, what is it he says? When you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching. There's the gift of teaching. A revelation. There's the gift of uh, prophecy. You have a gift of tongues. That's another spiritual gift. A gift of interpretation. All the others are spiritual gifts. So evidently, music is a spiritual gift and it's never listed. Everyone has a psalm. So I take it that, that, that you may have a gift that's not even listed there. Probably it is. So check out where you are and walk in humility. Very quickly. Regarding one's reaction to others, I kind of laugh when I read this one. Uh, chapter 12, verse, verse uh, uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 12. After humility, you have gentleness. It's the idea of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. That term was used of a horse. We use it today of a horse. It means controlled power. A horse is called a meek horse. It's made powerful, but it has control. I'm going to take the time I shouldn't. But let me take an illustration of, of Moses. Did you ever notice that when Moses was confronted with criticism of him, of himself, he never did a thing. He just waited for God to take care of it. When God's name was being violated, Moses stepped in. But for himself, mm -mm. he was meek. He was considered the, the meekest man on the earth. It's the idea of controlled power. You don't abuse your power. Next, if I may very quickly. And patience. This is very interesting because there are two words for patience. The one is the idea of um, enduring situations, difficulties, sicknesses, financial reverses, enduring things. The other has the idea of enduring people. And that's the word you have here, makrothomia. It means being long-tempered. You don't fly off the handle quickly. What a lesson. You don't become angry when somebody says the wrong thing. You have a long fuse. Uh, um, uh, that, 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 that one concept could be developed much, much more. So it has the idea of patient. Be very patient. He goes on to say this. Bearing with one another. I laugh when I read that one. It has the idea of holding up against one another. 
You know what that implies? They didn't all agree. That they had things between them that could cause conflict. And I don't care where you are or who you are. You're with somebody long enough, you're going to find some place where you disagree. My wife and I don't agree on everything. Isn't that a surprise? You are married, know that better than that. You don't agree on everything, but you don't get angry. You bear up with one another. You endure one another is the idea. So it says you bear with one another. Now here's the one that is really given space. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you do. So what's he saying? Forgive. 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 If I may be very blunt, one of the great Christian sins that I see in the church is lack of forgiveness. People holding a grudge. They'll say things like this, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That ain't forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, the Lord says in the New Covenant, their sins will I remember no more. And that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Their sins I'll remember no more. Now, did God forget? No, he's omniscient. Would you forget the circumstances? No, it's burned into your being. But you don't hold it as a grudge. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love does not keep track of sins. Forgive and put it behind you. Did you ever notice in the Lord's Prayer there are six requests? The only one that has an explanation is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Christ goes on to explain, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Now, he's not talking about how to be saved. He's talking to disciples. He's talking about maintaining a walk with God. And if you refuse to forgive somebody else, you can't walk with God. It's just that fundamental. There's a classic illustration of this in in, uh, Matthew 18. Peter asked, how often should I forgive a person? Till seven times? Now he's being very magnanimous. Because in the book of Amos, God says, for three transgressions of Geza, yes, for four. Then I'm going to get him. Then he goes all around Israel, comes to Israel for three transgressions, for four, then to Judah for three transgressions, for four, over and over again, for three transgressions, for four. So the Jews said, all right, you can forgive four times. That was God's limit, that's our limit. So Peter was being generous, till seven times? No, till 77 times. It may also be translated 77 times, we're not sure. But the Lord is saying, don't keep count. Then he gives the illustration of a servant that owed his master an impossible amount of money. And the master was going to throw him in jail. And he said, oh, have mercy upon me, and I'll pay it back. And that master forgave him that debt. That same scoundrel had another servant that owed him some money, paltry compared to what he owed the master. And he said, pay me what you owe, I'll throw you in jail. And that that servant said exactly the same words. Have mercy on me and I'll forgive you. And he threw him in jail. When that master heard about it, he put that servant in jail. 
Because if you will not forgive, when Christ has forgiven us such a huge, huge, huge burden of sin, who are you not to forgive? Don't say, I'll forgive and not forget. Don't hold a grudge. Don't. Forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Then in verse 14, and beyond all these things, put on love. It could be above, more probably beyond. Go beyond all this. Put on, that's, that's, that's put in here in the text, but that's what it means. Put on as a garment, love. That word love is going to come up next week in the controversial section. So I'll not discuss it now. Which is the perfect bond of unity. <laughs> when you read commentaries, they're all over the place on what that means, the perfect bond of unity. It literally says, the bond of maturity, the bond of perfection. I've come to the conclusion what that means is, the ultimate expression of spiritual maturity is love. How do you describe a mature Christian? Somebody that goes to church all the time? Mm-mm. Somebody that obeys the Ten Commandments? Mm-mm. Somebody that knows a lot about the Bible? Mm-mm. Love. Somebody that is mature loves. That's First John. You know a person loves God because he loves people. And the expression of maturity is love. Put on love, which is the bond of maturity. So that's what we have with regard to others. I'll come back to that in the application. Now, very quickly, page two. The obligations. The obligations. To be ruled by peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which all indeed you are called in one body. Uh, walk in peace. Let, let, let that be the uh, determining decision. The word rule means to be an umpire. Now, when I was uh, younger, I had not yet studied this passage as I should have. I often said, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to determine what decision you're going to make about where you should live, should you quit your job, should you change jobs, should you buy a house, should you buy a car. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So you'd say, I'd say, I have peace about it, that's what I'm going to do. Now, I know this is not always true, but it's been my observation that many times the peace that I have in my heart is because I want it. Uh, should I buy a top-of-the-line Cadillac or a stripped-down Ford Fiesta? I've always wanted a luxury car, so I'm going to buy that Cadillac. I have peace about that. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the church. Let the peace, peace of Christ be an umpire in your hearts to which you're called in one body. He's talking about the church. So when you are going to make a decision about what you should do, will it bring about peace in the body? When we meet as an executive committee, one thing we consider always is, will it maintain peace in the marathon class? When the elders meet, will it maintain peace in this congregation? So when you make decisions about what you should say, what you should do, will it make peace, maintain peace 
in marathon class or in the church. It takes just one person, just one person, can tear a church apart, can tear it apart. Very quickly, be thankful. In fact, notice it says, be thankful. The Greek literally says, become thankful. In fact, it says, be becoming thankful. Isn't that interesting? We're never completely there. Keep becoming thankful. Then the third one is, be governed by the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The question is, what's the word of Christ? It can refer to the scriptures. But more often, the word, the word of the Lord, the word of Christ, refers to the gospel. First Peter chapter 1, you're born again through the living and abiding word of God. What's that? The gospel. First Peter 4, 2, herald the gospel, preach the gospel. And here, you let, you, you, you're governed by the gospel. In Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and so on. What does that? The gospel. That gospel gets into your innermost being and separates. And that's what he's saying. Be governed by the word of God. In fact, it says, let it richly dwell within you. When it says dwell, it means to be at home. Richly, what does that mean? When you entertain a guest in your home and you really love that person, you'll spend money, you'll have the best food, you do the best things you can for that person. Let the word of Christ dwell within you. Yes, yes, yes. But let the gospel richly dwell within you. Just dwell on that gospel. Hear me. When you dwell on the gospel, you realize that it has huge implications in how you live. The method of justification always determines the method of sanctification. How you're saved is going to determine how you live. By grace through faith, by grace through faith. So dwell on the gospel. Don't ever take it for granted. And one way you do that is by singing. That's what he says. You look at it. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms. That has the idea of plucking, so it probably is looking at music with, uh, with an instrument. With psalms, hymns, that has the idea of praise, and spiritual songs, a wide diversity of songs. So that our music should be used to teach us. And our music should be used to admonish us admonish us to correct us music can be powerful to get the word of God across and that's what he's saying singing admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness it's the word grace singing with grace in your heart to God it's not just verbal not just some entertainment not just something that you like to do you sing in your heart. My dad was a monotone. He could not carry a tune in a 10-ton truck. 
But when it came to singing, he just bellowed out. It was awful. But he just bellowed out his hearts to God. And finally, be in subjection to the Lord Jesus. And this is the strongest one. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him to God the Father. Everything, 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 word, deed, thoughts, it's a barometer subjection to Christ. Now let me bring this to a conclusion very quickly. Three quick applications. Number one, you can tell how well a person's walking with God by the way he walks with people. If you can't get along with people, with Christian people, it's a sure indication he's not walking with God. I many times told my seminary students, for those who are going to the pastorate, I don't care how gifted a person is, how skilled a person is, how much a person knows about the Bible, if that person can't get along with, with other Christians, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, for the church's sake, for your sake, don't let him get on the board. He'll tear the church apart. Pretty well. It just takes one person. You can tell how well a person is getting along with God by the way he gets along with other people, with other Christians. It's a dead giveaway. If you cannot get along with other Christians, I mark you out. You're not walking with God. The second thing is be thankful. Be thankful. It just so happens, I didn't plan it this way, but you have thankfulness three times in this passage. You have it at the end of verse 15, be thankful. At the end of verse 16, thankfulness or grace. And then verse 17, giving thanks through Christ to God. Giving thanks, giving thanks, giving thanks. The word giving thanks in Greek is based on the word charis, grace. In Greek, the word for thank, to say, to say I thank you is eucharisto. In modern Greek, they say evchristo, but eucharisto, eu means good. Grace, good to you. That's what you're saying. Grace, good to you. You're giving thanks. In fact, the word grace has the idea of thankfulness in it because, hear me, every good thing you have is a gift from God. So this Thanksgiving, emphasize, be thankful. It'd be interesting just to go around the class and ask, why should we be thankful? Why should we be thankful? And you're going to end up ultimately because God is sovereign. Be thankful. Last, turn around and take, I mean, turn your page around and notice the title, Clothed in White Linen. I almost use as a title, Put on Your Sunday Clothes. When we grew up, <laughs> we were on the farm, we would take our baths in a number two galvanized tub and put on, for the next day, put on clean underwear, clean socks. We wore those the whole week. I can't believe that. We would clean, clean socks, clean underwear, and we had our Sunday clothes. We had Sunday clothes and everyday clothes. Put on your Sunday clothes. May I conclude very quickly, very quickly. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 19, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 19. I'll start with verse um, 8, talking about the, 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 the Lamb of God. I mean, talking about the, the bride of, of the Lamb. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Wait, 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 wait. Remember the old black spiritual, the Negro spiritual? I've got a robe, you've got a robe, all of God's children got a robe. That's true. When you trust in Christ, you're given a robe of righteousness. But there's a second robe, the righteous acts of the saints. Positionally, you're given this robe when you trust in Christ. Practically, live it out in your life. Put on clean, white linen in your daily life. Put on your Sunday clothes. But it starts with that first garment, a garment that's given to you. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are washed away. You move from this side of the cross to this side of the cross, and you're given a white raiment, white garment, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him when we trust in him. I pray that you've done that. Father God, we thank you for this lesson so practical. And we pray that we may indeed show our walk with you by the way we walk with your saints. And may we be thankful not just at Thanksgiving time, but at all times. And give us the grace to show in our daily walk our Sunday special clothes. Dismiss us with your blessing. Watch over us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.